Okay, I, I want to get started again. Um, we go back to our topic of, of unity and, and the challenge that um, um, God has given us. Um, I, I, I just keep emphasizing harmony and unity existing amongst us is the strongest witness that can be born. Where I want to go to is what led to the formation of regional conferences in the first place. Um, and so let me get to where I had gotten. I try to find um, one second. So we are all, okay. I think this is where we stopped talking about Adventism in 1943. Okay, back in 1943, I'm getting to the, I'm hearing a voice from the back, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, in October 1943, Lucy Bayard, or Brother Bayard, an Adventist in Washington, D.C., took his wife, Lucy, to the Washington Sanitarium and Hospital in Tacoma Park, Maryland, for medical treatment. That was an Adventist facility, an Adventist got sick, was taking his wife to Adventist Hospital. Both Brother Byard and his wife were black, but of a very light complexion. His wife was initially admitted to the Adventist Hospital. However, when Lucy Byers' true racial identity became evident, as her husband completed the admitting paperwork, he wrote down her race as colored, and the clerk double-checked, is she really colored? And she said yes. They said, well, we're sorry, we made a mistake. Because the Adventist Hospital did not provide medical services to colored patients. Without examination or treatment, Lucy, who had already been in a hospital room, was wheeled from a hospital room into a hallway as the hospital staff called around to other hospitals saying, we've made a mistake, we accepted a black patient, um, can you accept her? Eventually, Freedman's Hospital, operated by Howard University in Washington, D.C., accepted um, Lucy Bayard, and she died shortly after she was accepted from pneumonia. I don't know that an autopsy was done, so I'm not sure what she died of. It was the belief of the black Adventist community in Washington, D.C. in October 1943 that Lucy Byer contracted pneumonia while waiting in the, in the damp, it's October, so it's, it's getting chilly, in the hallway of the hospital. She'd been accepted in the hospital. She was just out in, in a hospital gown with her back exposed, not properly dressed, for hours while the hospital was waiting to try to assure a transfer of her from the Adventist facility to another facility. So I'm not sure if she actually got the pneumonia in the hallway, but the Adventist community in D.C. believed that she got pneumonia in the hallway, and this Adventist sister died. So the black Adventist community in Washington, D.C. went up into an uproar. To quiet the brethren, Elder W.G. Turner, president of the North American Division, went to the Ephesus Church in Washington, D.C. at the time, it's now called the DuPont Park Church, the next Sabbath. He chose as his text for his sermon, 1 Peter 4.12, which says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you 
as though some strange thing has happened to you. He had hardly sat down from preaching his Sabbath morning um, message when Brother James O. Montgomery, Brother James O. Montgomery is the father of Alma Blackman, who for many years was the director of Oakwood College's choir. He was sitting near the front of the church. He stepped to the congregation before the closing hymn was sung and delivered a speech to the congregation. He said, think it not strange, commenting on the sermon that had been preached. He said, yeah, I think it is mighty strange that there's a college Washington missionary to which I cannot send my children. Yes, I think it is strange. There's the Review and Herald cafeteria right down the street at which I cannot be served. I think it is mighty strange. So he really took the sermon, attacked the sermon publicly in front of the entire church, and after the service, a group of people gathered around Brother Montgomery, and in true Adventist style, guess what they did? They formed a committee. And this committee, made up of illustrious Adventists in the D.C. area, they included people like Eva B. Dykes. Eva B. Dykes was the first black woman in the United States to receive a Ph.D. degree, and she was a Seventh-day Adventist. It included people like Anna Bontemps. Anna Bontemps was a, another Adventist. She was a noted author of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, it also included, um, you know, some prominent Adventists at the time. So that very Saturday night, they formed an organization. They called their organization the National Association for the Advancement of Worldwide Work Among Blacks Colored Seventh-day Adventists. Alma Scott was elected the secretary of the organization. She had served as the president of the Howard University alumni at one point in the past, and at one point she had organized the entire alumni of Howard University overnight by sending telegrams to Howard alumni in different places. They said, we will follow the same model, and following that model, we will contact black Adventist leadership around the world overnight. They sent telegrams to black leaderships in, leadership in Jamaica, in Africa. They printed up stationery that very night and articulated a set of demands that they presented to the General Conference on Sunday morning. They did a lot of work that Saturday night. And that Sunday morning, they got a commitment from Elder J.L. McElhenney, President of the General Conference, that he would meet with them in his office the very next day, Sunday, October 17, 1943. So this was a huge event. Um, like I said, the press, black press reported this story nationally. And the story was, black Adventist lady dies because Seventh-day Adventist Hospital refuses to provide treatment. That was the galvanizing event that led to the formation of this organization that, that met with the GC president and, and, and stated a number of demands. Importantly, the stated goal of this organization was not the formation of black conferences. The organization was demanding complete integration into the church. As I mentioned before the break, in 1943, Adventists could not attend most, black Adventists could not attend most Adventist colleges and universities in the United States. They would not accept them based on their race. They could not attend most camp meetings. They could not go to most institutions. So the group was not demanding separate conferences. They were demanding full integration. They said, we are tithe-paying members. We are children of God. Open the doors of the church to equality to all members. I think another important point to keep in mind 
is this group that was formed, made this demand to the General Conference, was a lay group. It was not a group of, of, of pastors. It was a group of lay members who were concerned about this event and came up um, with a, a solution. Um, like I, I just said, these are the three principal demands. The integration of all Adventist institutions, greater black representation at all levels of administration, greater accountability for black members' financial contributions. They were saying, we are paying tithes, but we can't go, and the tithes helps to support the institutions. We can't attend the institutions. It's not fair. These were the demands. So I think it's important to realize what the demands were. Um, well, the General Conference responded. So it called a meeting in Chicago of all black departmental men and pastors of the leading black churches from around the country met the next spring, April 8 to 19, in 1944 in Chicago. The agenda called for the demands, and we saw the demands, these were the three principal demands of the group, and that's what the agenda called for. However, as the meeting wore on, the, um, the leadership of the General Conference, instead of following through on the demands that the group had that organized, that the, uh, was requesting, came up with the idea instead, instead of following through on these demands, why don't we give you your own black conferences, start your own conferences, and then the black leaders will be in charge of their own work, and they will have responsibility for their own work. So the, the proposal of conferences in that meeting came not from the demands of the members, but it was, if you want to call it a compromise, it was an alternative proposal. When that proposal was made, um, people like Jacob Justice, who has written about this, who was in the meeting, talks about the fact that the laity opposed the idea. They didn't like that. That was not what they came for. That was not what they were calling for. They were not calling for separate conferences. But this is what a general conference leadership proposed. The black ministers said, fine. It's fine with us. You, do, you don't want to share power with us? You want us to do our own thing? We can do our own thing. And so the black clergy went ahead with it. And the white clergy were happy to go along with it. Although the laity who had come forward with the demand had a very different set of demands. And it was not what they had asked for. And so, as a result of this, um, April 10, 1944, the General Conference and Spring Council voted to start black conferences. Um, Lake Region Conference led the way with the first conference in the Lake Union. Um, and then um, the uh, Northeastern Conference in New York was, was the next conference um, that started. But those were the events that led up to the formation of black conferences specifically. Any questions? Just, just want to make sure we, we are clear on, on what led up to it and how these conferences came into being. Okay. Yes. Um, the General Conference leadership at the time, if you go back and read what the positions have been, um, believed that Sister White wanted 
separation in the church. They, they, they use Sister White's reading all the time. Um, Jacob Justice, who wrote a, a history of this time, and he was actually in the meeting. Uh, he has a book, was not published by the church, called Angels in Ebony. He talks about even his experience as a student at Andrews in the early 1940s, where there was a quota for 21 students. And, and of course, black students had to room with other black students. Um, and he went to speak to the president of Andrews at the time, and he said the president of Andrews told him, this is his brother, this is what Sister White wants. We were doing, so the belief, uh, no, in fairness, keep in mind, the separation that existed in the church was exactly the separation that existed in society. We're talking about 1940s, we're talking before the civil rights movement. So the society had all of this separation. It's not like the Adventist church was out on a limb on this separation, but it was conforming to the world and conforming to the standards. And so I think, I think people were doing what the society wanted to be done, um, but actually used Sister White as a support and said, and that's why I think going through the history that I did in the last hour of what did Sister White recommend, when did she recommend it, really put what she had to say into context. And I don't think it is a correct reading of Sister White to say that Sister White wanted that. In fact, Sister White went on record saying there shouldn't be separation, in, uh, allowed separation, said we've got to do this now when those black whites who were working with blacks in the South were actually being shot at. And she says, okay, we, we, we've got to find a way to move the work forward until the Lord shows us a better way. So she never suggested it as a permanent solution, but just we, we've, we've got to continue to work and win whites in the South. We've got to win blacks in the South. <laughs> We've been killed if we, if we try to do it together. Let's figure out a way to do it differently. So I think, I I think it's fair to say that, I mean, j I, I can give you a couple more examples of that it wasn't just an isolated case where church leadership historically has been very conservative on the issue. And maybe I, I can give you a couple examples um, in a minute. But I want to give you a very positive note. Here's an, a letter from the GC president, um, Branson, um, that he wrote um, back in 1950. And it's, it's, it's a positive letter. He writes, perhaps no religious group in the United States or the world claims so loudly that it is international in its attitudes and services as do Seventh-day Adventists. And yet, in the matter of Negro segregation, we are trailing behind the procession. This is the GC president sending this letter out to all denominational leaders in 1950. And I, I'm saying, I don't want to paint a picture that everything was negative. This is clearly a very positive statement. We seem afraid, the GC president writes, to venture any changes in the relationships which we maintained a half century ago, notwithstanding the whole world about us has made and is still making changes. In the last hour I showed you, after the World War II, the government had done some integration in, in factories as a result of the, the war effort. Shall we be the last, President Branson writes, shall we be the last of the Christian bodies to break away from our historic attitudes and chart a new course in our human relationships? He continues, we wish to appeal to the managing boards of our publishing houses, our sanitariums and schools in the East, North and West to give immediate study to this matter. We believe that in most places in these sections of the country, there can be complete integration of the races in our institutions without serious difficulty. This is the GC president in 1950 writing this at a time when most of our institutions were still segregated and he's saying in the North, this can be done without any difficulty. There were other groups beginning to do it. He says, we don't have to be the last. We should be doing this. He understands, he continues, 
We understand that in the Deep South, a few of our institutional boards have voted to discontinue segregation. In some places, it will require some courage, he admits, to launch into such a program, but the entire country is headed in that direction. The government, the churches, and the business world are leading the way, and why should we hesitate to follow? That is a very positive message. That is a very progressive message of the General Conference President back in 1950. A month later, uh, Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education was handed down. So even before that happened, there was lots of other things happening. The GC President took um, a leadership role saying, folks, we don't have to be followers. We can be leaders. There's a lot happening. Our world is changing. We can change also. Sad to say that didn't happen. I gave the example that um, you know some of our schools didn't make progress until considerably much later. Southern was the last, 1968. That's the year Martin Luther King was assassinated when Southern actually integrated. So, so some schools did earlier than others. Uh, so I would say many of our institutions were slow. We're not leading, but we're, we're followers. Um, I want to give you another example uh, of, of the problem, and, and then I want to talk about where do we go from here. Dr. Frank Hale, many of you may know Dr. Frank Hale. He became the provost of Ohio State University. He's now retired. And Burrell Scott were two black Adventists in the Ohio area. And again, I'm looking at 1961 to 62. Monk, uh, wanted to enroll their daughters at Mount Vernon Academy. 1961 to 62, Mount Vernon Academy refused to allow the daughters of two prominent, highly educated Seventh-day Adventists. Um, um, Burrell Scott was an attorney. Frank Hale was a PhD professor at Ohio State. Um, to, to attend school. Um, they refused. Blacks organized, again, another committee, <laughs> the Layman's Leadership Conference, and demanded a meeting with the General Conference President to discuss this. The GC President refused to meet with them. In 1962, there was a General Conference session in San Francisco. And the first Sabbath of the 1962 GC session, the San Francisco newspapers run a front-page story printing the demands of this black organization, the Layman's Leadership Conference, which their demands were the end of racial quotas in the church and the desegregation of all Adventist institutions. The next few days, more stories ran in the local and national press. So remember, there's a general conference session taking place, and the news out of the session is the fact that Adventist institutions are not letting blacks into institutions. In 1962, civil rights movement is a hot topic in the United States. This is a national news story. On Wednesday of that week, only after the church has been publicly embarrassed, the GC president calls a news conference to announce that the church will desegregate and that the Frank Hale and Burrell Scott kids will be allowed to go to Mount Vernon Academy. So they did the right thing, but it's a sad commentary that it did the right thing only after it became a national news story that was a major source of embarrassment exactly at the time of a GC general conference session. Um, it's, it's another um, uh, sad movement in the church. Okay, God has blessed the current arrangement. But folks, I think the time has come for us to take a hard new look out of our church structures that are organized separately on the basis of race. The SDA Encyclopedia says that the arrangement is not ideal. However, the chapter 
describing the formation of regional conferences in a recent history book published by the church is entitled, and this is a direct quote, Separate Conferences, A Road to Fellowship. Separate Conferences, A Road to Fellowship. Now tell me, I, my mind may just not be able to wrap itself around it. I don't understand how separate conferences could be a road to fellowship. It's part of what I describe when I say we are celebrating what exists. Um, now, I, I mentioned this in response to a question, that the formation of regional conferences can be viewed as a progressive step on the part of the Adventist Church. Most other U.S. denominations had earlier, in the late 19th century, divided into two separate organizations based on race. That's true among the Pentecostals, it's true among the Baptists, it's true among the Methodists. They have their two completely separate denominations based on race. Um, the weekly worship hour is still the most segregated hour of the week in American life, and I mentioned that over 80% of all black people in America attend predominantly black churches. Of all the major social institutions in our society, the church, not the Adventist church, the church in general is still the most segregated. Americans of all different races work together, play together, study together, entertain each other, but seldom pray and worship together. I believe that the unity that John 17 talks about applies to our church structures. It's not just about doctrinal unity. The unity that will convince the world, as the Spirit of Prophecy says, that will convince the world that Jesus has come, has to be a unity that is visible to the world. It cannot be some esoteric unity that exists. It has to be visible. And I believe that Ellen White agrees with me on that. I'm actually agreeing with Ellen White on this. Earlier in the 20th century, there were proposals made to organize separate conferences on the basis of nationality in Europe. Um, the proposals were in 1885 that the Germans should have their own conference, the Italians should have their own conference, the French should have their own conference. The argument was efficient evangelism. Those who understand a language, those who understand a culture of a group, um, can be more effective in evangelistic outreach. And Ellen White says, no. If we do this, we are violating John 17. Explicitly, um, she says that. Um, here's a, another example. Um, her, in a journal, she said, this would not lead to union or harmony in the work, but to separate interests. And we would not work towards the unity that the Lord demands if they agreed to form in separate conferences based on nationality. The next day, Ellen White addresses the meeting, and these are some of the questions she says. Does Jesus understand the Germans? Does Jesus understand the French? Or is it that he gives his messages to his servants designed only for a select group of people? She answered, Jesus knows precisely what each person needs. Christ will make us one. Even though we are French, German, or American, we can be one in Christ. Um, I want to go to her, uh, her quotation. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9, page 195-196. She says, on the same issue another time, according to the light given me from God, separate organizations, instead of bringing about unity, will create discord. 
if our brethren will seek the Lord together in humility of mind, those who think it is necessary to organize separate German and Scandinavian conferences will see that the Lord desires them to work together as brethren. Our effort should be, should be to answer Christ's prayer for his disciples that they should be one. So the spirit of prophecy, the Ellen White, confronted the issue twice where people were saying we need to organize separate conferences and, and in, in Europe there was even a stronger um, rationale you could argue because there were language differences and she says they, they, they were saying there are language differences there are cultural differences we should organize separate conferences because it will give us greater efficiency in evangelistic outreach and she says according to the light given me from God. Separate organizations, instead of bringing about unity, will create discord. And if separate organizations based on nationality violate the light given her from God, she explicitly in this passage refers to John 17, we need to answer the prayer that we should be one. How on earth the separate conferences based on race not violate John 17 and violate the light given our prophet from God. I think it is clear. The Bible is clear and the spirit of prophecy is clear. We cannot um, continue to, to violate um, these principles. Well, is it possible for us to make a difference? I want to tell you that I think we can do it. And my strong rationale for why I think we can do it is because we've done it before. Earlier in our history, if you go back in early Adventist history, many of our early pioneers loudly proclaimed that God was alive and loudly stood up against the prejudice and discrimination of their society to act boldly in obedience to God. So for example, the majority of Christians did not oppose slavery in the mid-19th century. Many good and regular members of the Methodist denomination condoned slavery, and the church, the Methodist church in the U.S. split over the slavery issue in 1844. A year later, slavery divided the Baptists. Interestingly, many of the early Seventh-day Adventists came from a Baptist or Methodist background. In 1861, three denominations were torn apart because their members defended slavery. Many fine Christians defended slavery or insisted that it was an economic or political issue, but certainly not a moral one. In contrast, Ellen White, in Testimonies to the Church, Volume 1, called slavery a sin. Furthermore, Ellen White demanded that any Adventists who publicly defended slavery should be disfellowshipped from the church. Ellen White was proclaiming that God was alive, and I'm showing you she was not conforming to the dictates of her society. She was standing up on what she believed was right. Ellen White was not alone. Many early Adventists identified with the fairly radical abolitionist movement in the country. I mean, many Adventists don't know this, but Sojourner Truth, one of the black heroes of abolition, 
visited an Adventist camp meeting, and eventually, late in life, when she settled in Battle Creek, Michigan, became an Adventist and attended the Battle Creek Tabernacle. She is buried um, in, in the same cemetery close to where Ellen White is buried. Many students from the Adventist College in Battle Creek, which subsequently moved to Barron Springs, regularly visited her home. Um, Joseph Bates, the former sea captain, had much to do with Adventists accepting the Sabbath. He helped form the abolitionist society in his hometown. John Preston Kellogg, two early pioneers, they are, very no, they are well known for two things. One of the things is that John Preston Kellogg and his wife sold their prized oxen, Buck and Bright, to raise the money that started the publishing work in the Adventist church. But John Preston Kellogg is also known because he was the father of, his, of two sons, John Harvey Kellogg, the doctor who invented cornflakes, and Will K. Kellogg, his brother, the business manager of the hospital who started the Kellogg Company. Um, his farm, John Preston Kellogg's farm in Battle Creek, Michigan, was one of the stops on the Underground Railroad transporting slaves from the south to the north. John Byington, the first president of the General Conference had earlier left the Methodist Episcopal Church because it supported slavery. His farm in Bucksbridge, New York, was also a station on the Underground Railroad, illegally transporting fugitive slaves from the south to the north. So I'm showing you many early Adventists were actually actively involved in leadership. In fact, Ellen White herself advocated civil disobedience when the fugitive slave law was passed. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 1, page 202, she said, the law of the land requiring us to deliver a slave to our master, we are not to obey. So she actually advocated, um, I'm not sure if I had that quotation up here. Um, let me see if I have it. These are the examples I just talked about. Sorry, I'm not turning the, the, the thing if you were following me. John Joseph Bates, his role. John Preston Kellogg, his role. John Byington, his role. Um, yes, here's it. The law of the land, Ellen White says, requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey, and we must abide the consequences of violating the law. So even if there, and there were punishments, there were fines, there was potential imprisonment, she said, we'll face the consequences, but we will do what is right, because it is right. I mentioned the other point that she called slavery um, a sin. She said that blacks had a right to the blessings of freedom in Southern Work, page 15. Um, uh, and the majority of Christians did not oppose slavery, Ellen White said, any SDA who defended slavery should be disfellowshipped. She said to one supporter of slavery, you must yield your views or the truth. We must let it be known that we have no such ones in our fellowship and that we will not walk with them in church capacity. So very strong statements from Ellen White um, on, on the topic of slavery. Well, what can we learn from the early Adventists? The, the important point I would say about the early Adventists is that their beliefs and their positions were not based on what society said. It was based on their theological beliefs. It was based on their reading of the Bible. It was based on the study of God's Word. It was based on doing what was right because it was right, not because it was politically comfortable, not because this was something others want. Um, 
in the late 19th century. Let me tell you another place where in which Ellen White, I think, was very progressive. In the late 19th century, the views shared by both the political and cultural leadership of the United States, and even by many abolitionists, is that blacks were inferior to whites. You find this in the work of Stephen Jay Gould, the historian, who has shown that even many of those who were working for improving the betterment of whites, nonetheless believed that blacks were inferior to whites. In contrast, early Adventists emphasized that the races were equal. Their beliefs were based on two doctrines, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption. Christ's atoning and reconciling work meant that all men were saved and none were more saved that all men could be saved and none could be more saved than others. Uh, Christ came, Testimonies to the Church, volume 7, page 225. Here's a quote from Sister White. Christ came to this earth with the message of mercy and forgiveness. He laid the foundation for religion by which Jew and Gentile, black and white, free and bonded, are linked together in one common brotherhood, recognized equal in the sight of God. So I'm saying, we see that today. Ellen White says, everybody is recognized equal in the sight of God, and we think, of course. The point I'm making is that belief that all were equal in the sight of God, written in the 1860s, went against the beliefs of even those who were fighting uh, for freeing the slaves. So she was, in fact, very progressive. Um, and, and, and very led by her understanding of the scripture and what God is calling us to do. I'd like to, to end this, my presentation and, and really certainly have some time for questions. Uh, um, I'll talk more. The, the article that was passed out has more background, uh, th thinking about it theologically and, and what our opportunities are. Um, but I'd like to end with the wonderful story of a madman who rushed into the marketplace of a medieval village. Jumping to a pedestal, this man shouted to the crowd that was busy selling and doing their, their com commerce, God is dead. God is dead, he shouted. People didn't pay much attention to him because they thought the man is absolutely crazy. How is he up there shouting God is dead? And then he continued, and as he continued, people started to listen. He said, God is dead, and he's dying in this age at our hands. Tell me, he said, if God isn't dead, tell me why churches have become like tombs. If God isn't dead, tell me why Christians do not live the life of Christ. And that is the question I leave for each one of us today. Does our life... Does our ministry, does our work, does our work towards unity within the church, does it testify that God is dead or God is alive? If we believe that God is dead, then as Christians, we need to live the life of Christ. We need to strive for the unity that Jesus prayed for, that the world may believe, that the world may know that he has come because of the unity that is evident amongst us. I shared with you earlier, the spirit of prophecy says, it is the strongest witness that can be born is when 
we, the harmony and unity existing amongst us is the strongest witness that can be borne. And let me say, GYC members, I honestly believe from my interactions with church leaders, black and white on this topic, I do not expect, and I could be surprised and I could be wrong and I pray that I'm wrong, I do not expect to see leadership from our church on this issue. I don't expect to see our church leaders taking a stand on this issue. It is not politically palatable to either group right now. There has been such a history of tension that neither group trusts each other and no one wants to blink first. And I don't think either group is really centrally interested in it when I have talked to leaders on both sides about this issue as something we really have to address. So I think what is needed are Christians who have a vision, a vision to be faithful to God, a vision to be faithful to the gospel, a vision to say we want to do what God wants us to do. And when we raise our voices in this way, I think our leaders will respond. But I don't think on their own they will do it. And, and I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I pray that I'm wrong, but that has been my experience in talking to them. It, it's a nice idea, but, but they want to see how, how is this going to work out. I honestly believe, and, and, I, and I said this, um, when we preach the Sabbath truth and we encounter someone who wants to become an Adventist, who has heard the Sabbath truth, but who has a job that requires him to work on Sabbath. What do we tell that person? Go ahead, keep working on Sabbath until you can find a way, until the time is right. Or do we say, if you stand up for God, he will stand up for you. If you stand up for God and be obedient to him, God is going to find you another job or a better job. As a Christian, our task is to obey. God's task is to provide. God has promised us, them that honor me, I will honor. When I talk to our leaders about unity, it's like, how is this going to work? What are the next steps? Who's going to do what? And I don't have the answers. The Holy Spirit does. What we need to do is to commit, to be obedient, move forward, to try to be obedient. And I believe the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us. He will never let us down. He will never ask us to do that which we are not capable of doing. But we first have to accept that the status quo is a problem. We've got to do something about it. We've got to move to a new way. One of the most radical things I've said in my article, I think, many people say, okay, what we need to do then is just get rid of the regional conferences. And I say to you, that is not the solution. The regional conferences are as much a problem as all the conferences. In fact, the regional conferences existed because blacks were excluded from the existing conferences. So what we need to do, I believe, is to get rid of all the current structures and build new ones based on new principles, on principles of inclusion, of involving everyone in it. And, and that's a, a different idea than many people think. Um, but I think that is what it will take. But we have, the, the bottom line is, the status quo violates God's call to unity, and we have to find a way forward. Any questions for me? Anything is unclear? Anything you think I said was wrong or insensitive or inappropriate? <laughs>
I have been told, I, I preached a message like this in South Africa on my first trip there in the early 1990s, and um, a member came up to me and said, I, I didn't even preach a message with so much history, it was more my Adventist Review article, which talked about Ephesians and what God is calling us to be. It was much more, less historical and more um, along the lines of the Adventist Review article. And I was told by one of the leaders there that your message did not belong in the church on Sabbath. It's a political message. It belonged at a political meeting. And I, I, I tried to defend myself slightly. And when I did, it's imagined people erupted. A young man, black young man, got up and said when he joined the Adventist church in South Africa in the year 1990, during apartheid, he had been a Catholic, thought he'd found the truth in the Adventist church and became an Adventist. And when he came, and I, I haven't verified his story, I can only tell you what he said in the public meeting. He said when he came into the church and saw that there were separate black conferences, white conferences, and colored conferences, and he started to ask questions about it, he said, I was disfellowshipped from the church. This was the AY leader at the Johannesburg Central Church. He said, I was disfellowshipped from the Adventist church because I started to ask questions of why is it we are segregated along racial lines. And people got up with their testimonies that this is the truth for our time. So I think it's true in South Africa, it's true in the US. We need, but I think we need a new generation of young people who will say to our leadership, we need to be obedient. We need to do what God wants us to do. I, I will share with you tomorrow morning, Sister White says, the reason we have not moved the world, the reason we have not been more effective in our outreach is because we are not united. If we want to fulfill God's mission, if we will fulfill the Gospel Commission, we have to address this problem of unity. The world cannot see unity amongst us. And the most effective strategy of demonstrating to them that there is a power greater than human nature at work in us is the unity that exists amongst us. So I think it's not an option to remain the way we are. Any questions or comments? Yes. You want to turn slightly so they can hear? Sure. I think you've asked a very great question, and I want to find a wonderful quotation from Ellen White. Um, it's in my talk tomorrow morning that speaks to it. It's in this article. Let me, let me just read this. I think it speaks to this beautifully. Uh, I make the point um, on the bottom of the second page. Um, the, the differences of cultural background can provide spiritual enrichment. Here's what Ellen White stated. There is no person, no nation, that is perfect in every habit and thought. One must learn of another. Therefore, because we're not perfect, because each nation 
and group needs to learn of another, she says, therefore, God wants the different nationalities to mingle together, to mingle together, to become one in judgment, one in purpose. Then the union that there is in Christ will be exemplified. Does that mean, and I don't, I, I, I am no, I don't have all the answers. So does that mean that there is no place for an ethnic-specific church? I don't know that. I, I, I really don't. I, I, I do know that it's clear, and, and this is very clear, that God wants the different nationalities to mingle together. There's a place Ellen White said that if God made all, all of us alike, there would be even more trouble in the world, more conflict. So there's a reason why different groups have strengths, and we lose that if we are completely separate. So I, I think it is clear there must be mechanisms where we mingle together. That is 100% clear. That, that's what she says here. Therefore, God wants the different nationalities to mingle together, to be one in judgment, one in purpose. Then the union, which is there is in Christ, will be exemplified. And I think if you go back to her teaching in Europe, again, she says, I mean, the, the argument made sense. The, the different language groups in Europe, they're different cultural groups. Organize the work separately. She says, no, that violates John 17. We've got to work together. So I think we have to find ways, and that's why I'm saying even the situation in California doesn't have regional conferences, but I think that the life of Black Adventists and, 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 and White Adventists in Southeastern California Conference and Southern California Conference are very separate, even though there's no overall structural conference structure. Yes? Yes. Hi, I'm from Boston too. See, we don't know each other. Although we're from Boston. Okay, that's 
it's more comfortable. Yeah, comfortable. yeah it's more comfortable. Yes. Yes. I have an example. I use it in my talk in the morning um, in Acts 13, where the church was, in fact, integrated around class and racial lines by looking at the membership of the church as Corinth. And I, I'll make the point um, that the church, was it Corinth or Athens? I'm, I'm blocking. I'm not. Wherever it was, is <laughs> the first place that a church were called Christians, that the followers of Jesus were called Christians. It's it, Antioch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're absolutely right. Antioch. When you said it, it you're absolutely right. And it's the place where we have a description of the description of the members, um, uh, Jews and Gentiles and a Roman aristocrat worshiping together um, and fellowshipping together. So I, I, I do think I, uh, but I, I, I honestly don't think that there is necessarily a one size fits all and there's one thing we need to do. Um, but I think we do need to commit to be obedient, and God is going to show us what to do. I, I think the, the status quo is just is, is violating what God is calling us to be. It is hurting our evangelistic outreach. I mean, just the examples I gave from the, the U.S. example, it was 1960s, where these things caused, look, look at the embarrassment that was caused to the church. Look at what just happened in South Africa. This story was covered in the news in South Africa. Adventists suing Adventists because they're being forced to come together as one. It, it, it's, it's tragedy. Yes? I'm just thinking, like, you know, we have a saying that we call birds of a feather flock together. You know, and I live at a, at a campus where it's a very ethnically diverse campus. And, you know, our church, we all, our church campus, I mean, our church on campus is, it's, you know, the eldership is a good representation of all those different groups, and we worship together. But yet, when it comes to the social fellowship, you know, the Filipinos are with the Filipinos, the Hispanics are the Hispanics, and the blacks are with the blacks, and the whites are with the whites. And it seems that naturally humans just kind of tend to divide that way. Uh, you know, and so trying to force that integration doesn't seem to always work either. It seems to cause more division. How can we respond to that, that natural human trait? I think that's a great question. I have several um, quotations from the Spirit of Prophecy for us to look at tomorrow morning where she talks. I mean, tomorrow morning I'm really looking less at history and, and what the Spirit of Prophecy has to say about the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy and unity and, and how do we get unity. But, but in, in a nutshell, part of what I think needs to happen is leadership. And let me tell you what I mean by leadership. If you look at the history of Israel, the history of Israel was a history of the nation following the leader in obedience to God or in disobedience to God. When there was a king that did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, you read that the people did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And when there was a king that did this which was evil in the sight of the Lord, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ellen White has a statement that is frightening. It's frightening because it places a great responsibility on all religious leaders. And, and I, don't, I don't have the exact statement, but it's something like this. And I don't remember exactly where it is found, but it's, it's, it's there, trust me. She says it is seldom that a church rises above the spirituality of its leadership. 
if we don't challenge our members to rise, and that's, that's part of it. I, I showed uh, this morning in my first talk, I showed that the patterns you said, it's a normal human tendency. Researchers in experiments can, can, can generate it with something as simple, I said, as giving half the room blue t-shirts and the other half red t-shirts. We develop affinity and positive feelings towards the people who are like us. So it's, it's a natural human tendency, and we need to fight above it. But if, if, partly what I'm saying is, if we all accept the status quo as okay, everybody goes along. I mean, it's, it's, it's the path of least resistance. But if we challenge our members, what is God calling us to be? What is he calling us to do? My experience has been, I, I can, I, let, me, let me close on this point. The, the Adventist Review P, paper, I, 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 I've uh, given you to read, um, came out of this um, piece I wrote for the review. Um, and I, I, I mentioned early this morning that uh, the editor had sent me a response saying they're struggling with what, if any, used to make of it. And then I wrote a critique of his response and eventually decided to publish it. The action editor who was assigned by the editor to do this, he made edits to the article, which they always do, everything I've written for the review they edited, so that's normal. But it was the tone of his letter when he sent it to me. He said, we've made edits, and it's almost like, these were not his words, but like, take it or leave it, because we're not going to do much more. So don't protest, because they cut out a lot of stuff that I had was, was cut out. And it was like, take it or leave it. He's, and this was his point that I want to get to. He said, we know Ella Johnson, the editor, has decided to do this, but we know that every black Adventist is going to be upset with us for publishing this. That's what an editor of the review said to me. And you know what? He's wrong. They're wrong and they're out of touch. Now, I would agree that many black Adventist leaders will be upset with them for publishing this. But the people in the pew are not. I have preached this message in black churches and white churches, and I uniformly get people saying, I am so glad to hear this message. I am so I don't have a political agenda. This is not a political agenda. This is what is God calling us to be. When this is presented as a spiritual issue, I see Adventists black and white responding positively. Our leaders are not. They're, they're worried about who's going to be in charge. How is it going to be? I could care less. We need to do what God wants us to do. I don't want to be here for another hundred years. We need to finish the work that Christ has called us to be, and this is a part of the work that we are neglecting. So we need to do it. And we need people who will raise their voices and say, brothers and sisters, this is what God wants us to be. This is the unity we need. This is part of our successful evangelistic outreach. And I think that's part of what I'm, I think we need, is that if we, if we stake the high ground, uh, my, my point in the article is, too often what we have done on race concedes the frailty of human nature. We said, folks don't want to mingle. They want to stay with their own group. Let them be. But that is conceding where people are. Instead of saying, this is the cross. This is what Jesus has offered. His grace can, can, can enable us to do this that has not been done. More is, is possible for us. Challenge people to rise to the demands of the gospel. I think they will respond. And I think that's a challenge that is not occurring. I think people will respond if challenged. But we have to be committed to it. We have to have a vision about it. And I think people will respond. 
I think I have spoken enough. Any final question um, for today? Well, thank you for your time, energy, and effort. And I pray, let's have a word of prayer before we leave. May God bless you um, in your work, in your ministry. All of us have a ministry. That's why we're here. That's why we call called as Christians. Ordained at baptism to be faithful to God in everything that we do. And I pray that God will help you in your own witness. Can we stand as we have a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you our Father. We thank you that you love us and you care about us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that is greater than all of our sin. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the cross that is able to help us to overcome hereditary or cultivated tendencies towards evil. We thank you, Lord, for the time we have spent here. We bow humbly in your presence, asking you, Lord, to shower more of your love into our lives, to fill us with more of your Holy Spirit so that we can capture the vision to become everything you want us to be. Bless each one bowed in my presence today. Bless their families, bless their extended families, Bless their work, bless their witness, and help, Lord, that as we go forth from this place, we will try under the power of the Holy Spirit, not by might, not by human power, but through your Spirit, to let our light shine for you so that we can finish the work you have given us to do and go home to live with you. Bless us in the rest of GYC, and thank you for this organization and for what it has done in bringing us together. Thank you for your providence in bringing us together here today. And bless us as we go forth from this place to be a light in this world of darkness is our prayer in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.